While appearing on a show that lowers the collective IQ of the nation by at least one standard deviation, The View, Allie Wentworth, who is the wife of ABC News objective news anchor George Stephanopoulos, explained what election night was like at the Stephanopoulos-Wentworth home. Here's what it looked like. And I have an 11-year-old daughter who doesn't really understand what ISIS is, but she knows that she's scared, and she's now sleeping in bed with us every night. Yeah. Which... So what do you do, Allie? What do you, say? What do, you do? You got little girls. You, <laughs> yeah. you see what's happening. What can... What can you say to other parents who have who are at their wits end with their children mm -hmm. who are scared and they're also scared as adults? This is what I say. I say two things. I say to my kids, one is we help out everybody in this country that is really going to need our help. Whatever whatever in in organization, you know, we we give, we volunteer, we help out. Mm -hmm. Involves my my 14-year-old getting upset about the election and screaming no abortions really loudly. I have a 14-year-old upset And I was as like, well. you haven't kissed a boy yet. Don't use that word so flippantly, <laughs> but Okay. Let's just point something out. If you're wondering why the left have gone completely insane, perhaps it's because they were raised to be insane and now they're raising their kids the exact same way. Why in the world would a 14-year-old girl think that her world is ending because Donald Trump has been elected president? More importantly, why would she think her world is ending because of possible restrictions on abortion? She's 14. Are leftist parents truly raising their daughters to believe that their right to freedom is dependent on their ability to kill their own offspring in the womb? I'll raise my kids to believe that certain rights are sacred, the right to religious practice, the right to freedom of speech, the right to defend ourselves. The notion of teaching a little girl that abortion is the chief right women should expect from their government or that their life is somehow inevitably impacted by laws cracking down on abortion, that's patently crazy. The fact that some leftists apparently teach their kids that liberty can be boiled down not to individual choice and responsibility for that choice, but to the ability to pay a clinic to kill a baby in the womb and then take it out, that's pretty disgusting. As the parent of a daughter, here's what I plan to tell her about abortion. I plan to say, sweetheart, when you get married and when you have sex and get pregnant, that will be the greatest joy you can experience. I know that because it was the greatest joy that your mom and I ever experienced. Your birth was the highlight of our lives. Your existence is a timeless reminder that God loves us and he loves you and that he favors us with miracles every day, none greater than your creation. You're beloved of God and your children will be too. Children are the greatest gift we can receive. To spurn that gift, to destroy another human life, is a great evil, no matter any countervailing concerns. And here's the thing. We're, we're religious. But even if we weren't, that lecture wouldn't change all that much. Children are the greatest thing in life, and they are lives, regardless of whether you're religious or secular. And suggesting that true freedom lies in the ability to kill children in the womb, it's just disgusting. I mean, it's gross. Come on. Propagandizing 14-year-olds with that suggestion, that's even more gross. But if you tell your kids that evil Republicans are coming in the night to raid your womb, it's no wonder they get hysterical when Democrats lose elections. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> Alrighty, so much to get to today. So much leftist craziness out there. I mean, we've been focusing a lot on sort of the soul-sucking that's been happening in certain parts of the Republican Party. Um, but there's so much that's crazy that's happening on the left, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, we have to say hello to our sponsors at Helix Sleep. So if you go to helixsleep.com slash Ben, this is the place to go to get the most comfortable mattress in the world. We have a, one of these Helix Sleep mattresses, and they are just fantastic. The way that it works, you go to helixsleep.com, and they ask you for your height and weight and your body type and what kind of mattress you like sleeping on. Do you like it to absorb heat? Do you like it to be cool? Uh, do you like it to be more firm or more soft? Uh, and they can even make mattresses that are different for the different sides of the bed. So if you or your partner have different sleep behaviors, then, then you can change the, the mattress that way. They then send it to your house in a giant box, and, uh, and you unwrap the box, and it inflates. 
Uh, and uh, it, it's, yeah, it's super cool. It's, it's very, very comfortable. Apparently, they've done surveys and they found that sleep quality increases like 30% based on sleeping on a Helix Sleep mattress, really nice mattress. They run that 3D biomechanical model of your body through algorithms they've developed. And then if you don't like it, you can try it uh, for, for 100 nights, and then you can send it back for free. If you don't love it, no questions asked for 100% refund. So it's a great service, helixsleep.com slash Ben. You get $50 off your order, helixsleep.com slash Ben, and their prices are extraordinarily competitive, uh, very, very reasonable. The quality of the mattress is really good, I know, because I sleep on one every single night. Okay, so as we mentioned, you just saw Allie Wentworth talk about her daughter, and it really is amazing how many people on the left teach their kids that Republicans are to be feared and hated because Republicans oppose abortion, because Republicans don't like babies being killed in the womb. And again, I think that children innately understand what kids are, and they innately understand there's a baby in mommy's tummy. I know this because right now we have a seven-month-old, and we have an almost three-year-old, and the three-year-old knew all the way through the the pregnancy that there was a baby in mommy's tummy. I mean, she used to walk around the house uh, with a little doll under her shirt saying that she was pregnant just like mommy. Like, kids understand this, but adults are trained. They train themselves not to understand certain basic truths about life so that they can do what's convenient. This is making a a nation of crazy people, Uh, and it really is dividing us along lines that don't need division. There was a question somebody put out on Twitter, must have been, uh, a few weeks ago, where they said, what's the thing where in 100 years people are going to look back on American politics and say, I can't believe that was even a debate? This is the one. This is the one. Because as science gets better, as we see into the womb better, as we, it is clear to people what exactly is going on inside the womb, what happens in pregnancy, as more people become aware of it, people are going to see this for the evil that it is. Again, the idea of a 14-year-old running around, running around screaming because she won't be able to get an abortion under Trump, number one, it's not true. Number two, even if it were true, How about mommy says to her, sweetheart, you're never going to want an abortion, and abortion is bad, and actually what you should be focused on is making good decisions in your life and not your ability to kill a baby. The idea that your lifestyle is compromised because you have a baby, it's just, it's it's stomach churning. I mean, the basic notion the left promotes with regard to abortion, that your lifestyle must be preserved at the cost of another human life is really, really stomach churning. That's not the only stomach churning thing, though. The left proclaims itself a big fan of human rights. And, uh, and the big news story of the day is what's happening in Aleppo in Syria. So Aleppo, as Gary Johnson well knows now, uh, is a city in Syria. What is Aleppo? That's what it is. And Aleppo has been the site of a raging battle that's been taking place over the course of several months between rebels against Bashar Assad and the Assad regime. The Russians back Assad. The Russians have been lending support to Assad to go in and slaughter his own people. And the reports out of, out of, out of Aleppo are becoming increasingly insane. I mean, we're talking about, there was a report yesterday that 20 women had committed suicide in order to avoid being raped by Assad's forces. Apparently, there were 100 school children who were, who were killed when they were, when they were suffocated under a building that was blown up by Assad's forces. Uh, the UN is saying that there are scores and scores of people who are civilians who are being killed uh, in Aleppo. And the Obama administration is just devastated about this. And so they sent out Samantha Power, who's the UN ambassador, and who, by the way, wrote a a book about American inaction during genocide. I mean, that's her claim to fame. Her actual book is about this, which which is an incredible thing, right? I mean, the fact is that she was appointed specifically because of her unwillingness to stand by blindly, supposedly, when genocide was occurring. The book was called A Problem from Hell. It was a big bestseller uh, back in, uh, like, 2002, uh, and it explicitly talked about American inaction. It goes through all of the, the various genocides that have happened around the planet uh, during the last hundred years and, and gets very upset with the United States for not stepping in. The New York Times book review talked about her book at the time 
And it said, Washington is a place of defeatism, inertia, selfishness, and cowardice. Warnings pass up the chain and disappear. Intelligence is gathered and then ignored or denied. The will of the executive remains steadfastly opposed to intervention. Its guiding assumption is that the cost of stopping genocide is great, while the political cost of ignoring it is next to nil. And And basically, she makes the case that we ought to be more interested in genocide around the world. Well, the Obama administration obviously didn't care about the genocide that was happening in Syria, and it is a genocide. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people dead. The latest estimate is 470,000 people dead in in Syria, and several million have been exiled from Syria. The entire refugee crisis in Europe is largely due to what's happening in Syria. Obama, as you recall, he said that he drew a red line if Assad had used chemical weapons against his own people. Then Assad did use chemical weapons against his own people. And Obama said that he was going to take military action. There was blowback to that. Then he said he was going to do what, what John Kerry called a pinpick strike. We're just going, it won't be heavy. It'll be tiny. It'll be like a needle. And then Putin comes along and says, you know what? I'll cut a deal on behalf of Bashar Assad. We'll get rid of some of these WMDs. They didn't. And we will make sure that Assad is kept under control. They didn't. And Obama jumps on that and he says, sure, Vlad, you lead the way. You lead the way, Vlad. And Vladimir Putin says, excellent. And then he proceeds to enshrine Assad, work with Iran to enshrine Assad. Right now in Aleppo, you have the rebels. And on one side, you have the Iranian militias who are going in there to slaughter everybody. On the other side, you have Assad's people who are going in there to slaughter everybody. And the Obama administration claiming all the way through that this is totally wild. How could this have possibly happened? Here is Samantha Powers, the the lady who wrote this book, literally about American non-intervention during genocides. And uh, and she's being feeded by the media. The media thinks she is just wonderful for doing this. Uh, I mean, talk about virtue signaling. Here she is. Russia, Iran, and their affiliated militia are the ones responsible for what the UN called a complete meltdown of humanity. And they are showing no mercy. No mercy despite their territorial conquest. Even now, no mercy. In the last 24 hours alone, pro-Assad forces reportedly killed at least 82 civilians, including 11 women and 13 children. And it is up to each and every one of us here to defend those rules. To the Assad regime, Russia and Iran, three member states behind the conquest of and carnage in Aleppo, you bear responsibility for these atrocities by rejecting UN, ICRC, evacuation efforts. You are signaling to those militia who are massacring innocents to keep doing what they are doing. Denying or obfuscating the facts as you will do today, saying up is down, black is white, will not absolve you. To the Assad regime, Russia and Iran, your forces and proxies are carrying out these crimes. Your barrel bombs and mortars and airstrikes have allowed the militia in Aleppo to encircle tens of thousands of civilians in your ever-tightening noose. Okay, and so she is obviously condemning Russia, Iran, Syria. Only one problem. She sided with Russia, Iran, and Syria. Her administration sided with all three of those. They left Assad in power. Uh, the, the Hillary Clinton, you remember, Hillary Clinton called Assad a reformer. The media used to treat Assad with kid gloves. They used to pretend that he was a good guy in the region. Iran has been empowered massively by the same administration that cut a, a nuclear deal with Iran, giving them the capacity to broaden their economy, give them $150 billion, open their economy to the world, allows them to continue funding terrorism, including terrorism in Syria and in Iraq. 
And as far as Russia, obviously the Obama administration has been super warm toward Putin. They've allowed Putin to do anything that he could possibly want to do. They've allowed Putin to take over everything. And so the hypocrisy of the left when it comes to criticizing Russia is really amazing. The the, the left is now ripping on Russia for what's going on in Syria. They're the ones who handed it over to Putin. And I want to point something else out here, too, and that is that there's this weird idea that has prevailed in, inside the Obama administration uh, that you can shame bad people into doing good things. If you just shame them, then they'll, they'll do the right thing. Right? You remember Michelle Obama with her Bring Back Our Girls hashtag. After Boko Haram, the terrorist group in Nigeria, kidnapped a bunch of schoolgirls, she held up that hashtag. Like Boko Haram cares what you hashtag. You remember that after Putin invaded Ukraine, Jen Psaki of the State Department, she tweeted, hashtag united for Ukraine. Did that get... Putin out of Ukraine? Of course not. It didn't do anything. But this, is, this all extends back to the same mentality as Gandhi. So Gandhi was a big fan of nonviolent resistance. Back in 1938, he said this about the Jews. He said, if I were a Jew born in Germany, this is during the Nazi period, if I were a Jew born in Germany and earned my livelihood there, I would claim Germany as my home, even as the tallest Gentile German might, and challenge him to shoot me or cast me in the dungeon. The Jews of Germany can offer satyagraha, that's the passive resistance, under infinitely better auspices than the Indians of South Africa. Of course, that was inherently untrue because the British were not vile Nazis, and the Nazis were. In 1946, after he found out about the Holocaust, he continued to maintain this. He said, Hitler killed five, five million Jews. It is the greatest crime of our time, but the Jews should have offered themselves to the butcher's knife. It would have aroused the world and the people of Germany. They sort of didn't have a choice, and they were slaughtered by the millions. The idea that the world would have been aroused by knowledge of the Holocaust is nonsense. Everybody knew about the Holocaust while it was happening. The contemporaneous documents show that was the case, and the United States wouldn't even bomb the rail lines. So the idea that that you can offer passive resistance to evil and that that somehow suffices, that's ridiculous. But that's been the Obama administration policy all the way through. And yes, Putin is an evil man. Putin is a a deeply evil human being uh, who has not only expanded Russian borders at the expense of free peoples, he's also also murdered dissidents, imprisoned dissidents, uh, imprisoned people who are oligarchic, who he doesn't like, and then handed their money to other oligarchs that he does like, personally enriched himself to the tune of $40 billion, supposedly. Uh, He has taken measures to to destroy lives all, all throughout the world. I mean, Vladimir Putin is one of the world's worst human beings. He really is one of the world's worst human beings. And the fact that the Obama administration is now calling him out after years of propping him up is truly hypocritical. Now, what's just as hypocritical is the Republican take on Putin. So there's a poll that came out today that is really quite disturbing. This is a poll from The Economist, YouGov. And it talks about net favorability of Vladimir Putin among Republicans. So the net favorability of Vladimir Putin among Republicans in, in 2016, in, 2000, in 2014, July 2014, Republican net favorability for Putin, meaning the number of people who like him minus the number of people who hate him, was negative 66%. So it's probably like 10% liked him, six, 76% thought that, that Putin was evil. Today, today, December 2016, that is a negative 10%. So that means that 35% probably like him and 45% think that he's bad. Okay, that's not good, folks. That's not good. If you're one of these people who's gotten warm to Putin because you think that Putin was mean to Hillary and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, understand, he's not your friend. Vladimir Putin has now played two straight administrations. He played Bush. Remember Bush saying that he looked into Putin's soul? I looked into his soul. And he saw something good there. And it turns out that, you know, McCain was actually right about this. He looked into Putin's soul and saw KGB. And then Obama came in and said, you know the thing about that Bush? He was too hard on Putin. Give him a reset button. Give him more power. Everything will be hunky-dory. And Putin proceeded to screw the United States once again and expand his power at our expense. And now Trump is doing the exact same thing. And you've got Republicans going right along for it. You've got Republicans going right along with it. 
And that's dangerous stuff. That's dangerous stuff. Putin is not a good man. Putin is not your ally. Putin is not the guy you can rely on to be a bulwark against the bad guys. He is one of the bad guys. If you want to say that there are alliances of convenience that you might be able to draw with Putin from time to time, that's one thing. But if you want to say that Putin is an actual ally in the war on terror, or you want to say that Vladimir Putin is the guy you're going to delegate foreign policy to, look, Putin knows what he's doing here, and he knows which buttons to push, and I think that it's only a matter of time before Putin makes a very aggressive move in Central Asia, you know, talking about Kazakhstan, or he makes, an, or he makes a strong move against Latvia or Estonia or Lithuania, and then he dares Trump to stop him, and the chances are Trump won't do anything. The chances are very strong that, that Trump won't do anything. The proof is in the pudding. Trump's selection of Rex Tillerson as CEO of Exxon. Tillerson, as I said yesterday, this isn't about Tillerson, it's about Trump. The only thing Trump cares about from Tillerson is presumably what Tillerson thinks of Putin and Tillerson and Putin get along. Trump said this yesterday in Wisconsin. Here's what he said. You know, Rex is friendly with many of the leaders in the world that we don't get along with. And some people don't like that. They don't want him to be friendly. That's why I'm doing the deal with Rex, because I like what this is all about. And we're going to have somebody that's going to be very special. Okay, so he likes the fact that Tillerson has relationships with some of the worst people on earth. This is Obama-esque language. Isn't it better that we should talk to Cuba? Isn't it better that we should hang out with the bad guys, that we shouldn't be talking with the bad guys? Wouldn't it be better if we, if we were talking to Iran rather than not talking to Iran? This is not a positive development. It's not. And for all the people who are complaining about what's happening in Syria, Trump has no intention of, of doing anything in Syria to help people. Now, maybe you think that's good. Maybe you do. But the truth is that there are certain basic truths about foreign policy that very few people want to acknowledge. The, the most fundamental truth is that when it comes to a choice between genocide and American intervention, most people will choose genocide. And that's been true historically for the United States. We'd rather watch from abroad as a genocide happens somewhere than we would get involved. And that's a question that we ought to be asking ourselves is what extent is the involvement necessary? Should that involvement include airstrikes or should it also include boots on the ground? How much do we care about this? And if we're not honest with ourselves about this question, more people are going to die while we dither around. But clearly Trump doesn't care particularly much. Here's Donald Trump's spokesperson, Jason Miller. He asked about Vladimir Putin's involvement in Syria. Now, do we have that? No, we don't have that. Okay, well, he said earlier, he said that, that th hundreds of thousands of people in Syria being killed, we were viewing that through the, the wrong lens. That's what he said on Fox News a little bit earlier today. We should view that through a different lens. It's, again, no, we shouldn't. Something is really bad happening, and, and you can say that we don't have the wherewithal or we don't have the resources or we don't have the will to, to stop it, but to pretend that Obama's awful, awful, awful about Syria and then pursue exactly the same policy and actually warm to Trump is more than a little bit hypocritical. The same thing is happening, by the way, about Russian hacking, of course. The, 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 the real reason that Republicans shifted on Putin is not because they thought that Putin was fighting ISIS. Okay, the real reason that Republicans shifted on ISIS is the same reason they shifted on WikiLeaks. When WikiLeaks was targeting the American military, we hated WikiLeaks. Then it started targeting Hillary, and a lot of Republicans said, hey, WikiLeaks, they're great. They now have, a, by the way, they, they went from a 47% net unfavorable rating among Republicans in 2014 to a net 27% favorable rating among Republicans now, WikiLeaks. And they still are releasing American military information, but we're cool with that because they're serving our purposes. Again, this just goes to show you that most people down deep don't really care about anything remotely approaching intellectual honesty. They care much more about, does it serve my interests, does it not serve my interests? And that's true also of the Russian hacking. So long as the Russian hacking, we think, helped Trump, it's okay. If the Russian hacking had helped Hillary, we'd be over the moon about it. It'd be the end of the world. We'd be, we'd be losing our minds. But if you're Bob Corker, right, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee... 
a guy who's a, who's become sort of an ally of Trump, he says that there's no reason we should have our hair on fire about Russian hacking. I'm assuming that plenty of people are attempting to listen to my phone calls. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the way intelligence is gathered. So the hacking piece, the hacking piece is, I mean, I don't think we ought to have our hair on fire about that. I'm sorry. I mean, that's what people do. It's what you do with that. And right. uh, um, I mean, we need to guard against it. We need to do everything we can to make sure that it doesn't happen. And certainly in our office, uh, we're doing everything we can to make sure that our computer systems are not hacked. And right. this is obviously raising alarms for everyone. But, but at the end of the day, um, trying to understand what Russia is doing, not only here in the United States, but in elections around the world, yep. uh, is an important thing for us to know, right? But we shouldn't have our hair on fire about it, right? We should, we should just I don't even know what that means. And I'm not sure. I, I would like to see Bob Corker's hair on fire just for the, the thrill of the, the fun of it. I mean, just the deputy dog of him running around with his hair on fire still speaking with the slow cadence would be would be amusing. But we have to sign off here, but there's a lot more to come. We are going to talk about some good things that Donald Trump has been doing. The man obviously has tremendous personal magnetism, and we'll talk about the evidence of that at dailywire.com to, to view the rest of the show. Uh, you subscribe there, $8 a month. If you, if you subscribe now, you get an annual subscription, you get a free copy of my book, True Allegiance, signed by me. And we do have a Daily Wire store coming in the very near future, and you'll get discounts there. We have all sorts of goodies coming for members, dailywire.com for that. Or you can listen later at iTunes and SoundCloud and, and YouTube and, uh, and check us out there. We are the largest conservative podcast in the United States. Okay, so now it's time. You know, we haven't done it in a while, so let's do a little bit of good Trump, bad Trump. Let's see, let's see if we can grab that. Do, can we? No? Oh, sorry, I gave, I gave my guys no notice, but that's why they get paid really terrible dollars, because they're supposed to be able to deal with it. Good Trump, bad Trump, which one will we get today? There we go. It's been a little while. I just felt like Brandon Snipes deserved a little bit of a shout-out. So let's start, with, let's start with some bad Trump. There's actually more good Trump than bad Trump today, not based on policy, but based on sort of the things that he's saying. We'll start with, we'll start with some bad Trump. Here's the bad Trump face. Uh, so... Donald Trump, uh, this is less bad Donald Trump than it is bad Paul Ryan, actually. So Paul Ryan, a lot of Republicans have, have been doing the what, what I'll call the I hope strategy, the I hope strategy. And it's one thing to say you personally hope that Donald Trump turns out to be everything you wish he would be. You personally hope that Donald Trump turns out to be the greatest person who ever lived. I personally hope that Donald Trump is the second coming, or in my case, the first coming. I personally hope that Donald Trump is just the, the most wondrous human who ever lived. Okay, that's your feelings. I don't care about your feelings. Nobody cares about your feelings. If you, are a, if you are a Republican member of Congress, if you're Paul Ryan and it is your job to actively ensure that Donald Trump is not allowed to get away with the bad stuff, I hope is not a strategy. Hope is never a strategy, right? And we used to say this, actually, when Barack Obama was saying hope and change, and we used to say, well, hope isn't a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Paul Ryan has been kind of poo-pooing all of the terrible things that Donald Trump has been doing with regard to corporatism, with regard to some of his nominations, with regard to business conflicts. Trump, by the way, pushed off his press conference on his business conflicts next month. I hope that that I hope that that is the that, that he is that he is going to be using that time to actually come up with a coherent plan. Um, but we'll have to analyze it as it comes. It's funny when I have conversations about Trump now, everything relies on this I hope routine. So I'll say things like I don't like what he did with Rex Tillerson, and they'll say, well. Got to give him time. I hope it'll be okay. I say, well, no, 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 no. That's not your job. Your job is to analyze the evidence in front of you. If the evidence changes, as I said yesterday, then your opinion can change. But you don't get to just ignore the evidence in front of you because I hope. Okay, it doesn't work that way. 
It wouldn't work that way with Obama. It didn't work that way with Bush. It doesn't work that way with Trump. If Trump does something bad, then your job is not to say, well, I hope that that bad thing will end up being good. It's your job to say, that's a bad thing. Right? Just as an intellectually honest human being, it is your job to say, that's a bad thing. Now, there are certain appointments where you can say, he appointed somebody. That doesn't look good. That doesn't look good. Maybe things will change later, but you know, I don't know. Or we don't have enough information. That's possible, too. We don't have enough information about a particular nominee to know whether that nominee will be bad or good in the end because we don't, this person's a complete mystery. Now, very few of his nominees are a complete mystery, but I'm sure there will be some. And there he said, we just don't have enough evidence to know, right? I said this actually about the, the soft bank deal. I said, we don't have enough evidence to know whether this was some sort of cronyistic payoff. So based on the information that we have in front of us, it's a good move. But we don't have enough information. We don't know all the information. With Carrier, we knew enough information to say whether it was bad. Okay, so I hope isn't a strategy, but it is Paul Ryan's strategy. And the reason that a lot of Republicans are doing this wish-casting routine, and that's what it is. They just forecast their wishes. They say, oh, well, my wish will eventually come true. If I clap hard enough, Tinkerbell will live. The reason a lot of people are doing that is because you're not going to make friends and influence people, number one who are really over the moon, they're, in, they're still in the post-coital glow of this election cycle, uh, and they're not going to let up on that right now. Criticizing Trump it d- does not make you popular. Uh, if, if you want to get good ratings, you do what, what Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram do, uh, and Michael Savage, for example, you just go out and you shill for him full-time. But if you, if you call it honestly, that's not something that's, that's going to necessarily gain you uh, a lot of credibility. So if you're, if you're in the media business, there's a, a real profit interest in the I Hope strategy. If you're a member of Congress... The strategy seems to be from Paul Ryan, if I praise Trump, if I'm nice to Trump, Trump will conversely be nice to me. Right? If, I, if, I, if I butter Trump up, basically, then he'll be really nice to me on the other end. This neglects a, a simple fact about Trump. Trump is only going to be nice to you if he, if he likes you in the first place. Okay? You, be, you buttering him up, that's only useful if Trump has sympathy for you in the first place. If he hates you and you butter him up, he sees you as a weakling. Right? This, is, this is true of, of Mitt Romney. If he hates you, if he thinks you're terrible, and then you try to butter him up, then he's going to chop off your head. Chris Christie, right? Chris Christie tried to butter him up, and Trump has exiled him back to New Jersey where he has a 25% approval rating. And so Paul Ryan doesn't understand. Trump hates him. Trump thinks he's awful. If Trump could have during the, during the election cycle, he would have backed Trump's primary opponent. Uh, he would have backed Ryan's primary opponent. Trump despises Paul Ryan. And so Paul Ryan is doing this routine where he poo-poos all of the bad things Trump is doing in the hopes that that will mean Trump will sign off on entitlement reform or something. It ain't going to happen. And Trump made that clear yesterday. Here is Donald Trump threatening Paul Ryan on a national stage. Speaker Paul Ryan, I've really come to appreciate Oh, no, I've come to appreciate him. Speaker Paul Ryan. Where is Speaker? Where is he? He has been... I'll tell you, he has been terrific. And you know, honestly, he's like a fine wine. Every day goes by, I get to appreciate his genius more and more. Now, if he ever goes against me, I'm not going to say that, okay? He's a great guy, and we have some amazing things in store. He's a great guy. We have some amazing things in store. If he crosses me, I'll murder him and leave his head on his wife's doorstep. It'll be just spick. He's like a fine wine, except if I decide I dislike him, in which case I will dismember him, weigh him down with cement, and dump him in the nearest body of water. I mean, and this is what Paul Ryan is in for. And, and Trump's not lying there, right? He's being honest. That's the charm of Trump. When Trump says stuff like that, he means it. He ain't lying, right? He ain't fibbing. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So that is, that is bad Trump. Okay, now time for, at long last, 
Some good Trump. Yay, some good Trump. Okay, so Trump understands, obviously, on a gut level, what a lot of Americans uh, are feeling about the culture. Uh, and one of the one of the pieces of evidence for this is, is something that he said. And it shows the disconnect, I think, in America on cultural matters. Trump was talking about Christmas, and, and here's what he said about Christmas that has the media mocking him. So when I started 18 months ago, I told my first crowd in Wisconsin that we're going to come back here someday and we are going to say Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, but Merry Christmas. Okay, Happy New Year, but Merry Christmas. Okay, so a lot of people... A lot of people, uh, you know, look at this and they say, come on, really? This is just silly demagoguery, this Merry Christmas. Like, when was anybody banned from saying Merry Christmas? When was it, when was it ever the case? Has anybody in the United States been prosecuted for saying Merry Christmas? This is the disconnect, okay? The disconnect is very real because there are a lot of Christians who do feel that they're under assault, who do feel that there is an attempt to undermine the, to, to undermine the, the, the nature of the country as a Christian-based country, as a Judeo-Christian country. And just just in the last week, the, the ACLU sued a small town in Indiana because there was a Christian cross atop the spruce tree in the town square to honor Christmas. Now, as a Jew, let me be the first to say, put the cross back up on the tree. Okay, The cross should be up on the tree. It ain't my holiday. It's your holiday. The idea that, that I mean, that's, that's the equivalent of you saying, well, that, that big menorah in the public square, you got to take that down because you never know. It might offend the people who, are, who, who like Kwanzaa. Hey, can we all just get over it a little bit? First of all, Christianity is the foundational religious belief of the founders of the country. The country is founded on these Judeo-Christian notions, things like human beings are made in God's image, certain things like God-given rights that are expressed in the Declaration of Independence given to us by our Creator. That's unique to the Judeo-Christian tradition. But this is a Christian country, okay? So the, and when I say it's a Christian country, I don't mean only Christians belong here. I don't mean only Christian ideas are, are promulgated. I do mean that the basis for our liberty is in the Christian worldview that was combined with the, the Enlightenment ideas of, of the 16th and 17th centuries to create the founding. And to get rid of Christianity, a lot of people feel like every time I say Merry Christmas, I've got somebody from the left yelling at me because they, because they think that I'm being intolerant. I'm not being intolerant. You know, people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. You have a holiday party instead of a Christmas party. First of all, it's not a holiday party. Can we be straight about this for just a second? Okay, again, playing the Jew card here. Here's the thing. Hanukkah, which we celebrate this year, it actually coincides with Christmas. Hanukkah is not a major holiday in the Jewish calendar. There are several major holidays in the Jewish calendar. You'll know them when I take them off, right? Because the major holidays in the Jewish calendar are what we call Yom Tovim, the literally, literally good days, right? Yom Tovim. And those Yom Tovim are, are days where I have to not work, right? So I'm talking about Sukkot, that's the one with the, the Festival of Booths, or Shavuot, the, festi- the Feast of Tabernacles, that's one where God gave the Jewish people the Torah, or Passover, where you take off two days at the beginning and two days at the end, uh, or Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Those are the big ones where I actually have to take time off of work because those are our big holidays. Hanukkah is a great holiday. Don't get me wrong. I love Hanukkah. And we'll, when, when we hit Hanukkah, I'll explain the story of Hanukkah and what exactly it's about. But is it a major holiday in the Jewish calendar? It's not on the par with the other ones. But the entire secular world treats Hanukkah as though it's on par with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur or more than that because it coincides with Christmas on the, on the calendar. And that's just silly, okay? It's the Christmas season. It's not the holiday season. Our holiday season was back in September. Go back and look at our podcast schedule. That was our holiday season. Right? I missed like six days out of a month of broadcast because of that. Six days? Yeah, I think is it seven days out of a month of broadcast because of that? 
Uh, so that's that's you know that's our holiday season. It's not the holiday season. Kwanzaa isn't even a real holiday. It was made up by by some black studies professor in the 1970s. The the only holiday of any real import during Christmas is Christmas. That's the one that, that people should be focused on. And when Trump says we'll go back to saying Merry Christmas, I think a lot of people thrill to that. Even though, is that the biggest threat? No, of course it's not the biggest threat. You can't say Merry Christmas. But what he really means by that is we're going to let you express your Christianity in public again. And that's something that a lot of religious people thrill to, and they should thrill to. So that is that is good Trump. It's particularly good Trump because the media simply don't get it. Okay, me, other good Trump. So Trump obviously has a lot of personal magnetism to him. And now he's reaching out to a lot of people from various sides of the aisle. Now, in order for this to be good Trump, you have to assume that these people aren't influencing Trump. Trump is just kind of influencing them. Right? When he meets with Ezekiel Emanuel, he met with Ezekiel Emanuel, the father of Obamacare today. I'm not sure what the goal of that was, other than to maybe look moderate to the Democrats, which, of course, is never going to happen. They have an interest. The, the great irony of this presidency is that Donald Trump, in all likelihood, if I had to put money on it, is going to govern like a centrist Democrat. He'll spend the first six weeks doing a bunch of stuff I love. He will. And, then I, I, and that's not an I hope. I really think he will. I think he's going to appoint a good conservative justice to the Supreme Court. Whether Mitch McConnell confirms him or not is another story. But I think that he will try to do that. I think that he will attempt to repeal Obamacare, although I think he won't do it in the way that I particularly like. He'll do a lot of stuff that's pretty good in the first six weeks. And then I think he'll govern like a moderate Democrat. But what's ironic is that even as he does this, Democrats have an interest in portraying him as this right-wing nut job, and so they'll continue to push that out uh, no matter what he does. But he's obviously trying to, to boost his own image, and he's got a lot of people giving him testimonials you wouldn't have thought would give him testimonials. So you got Jim Brown, uh, the, the former star of the, of the Cleveland Browns, uh, saying now that he, he loves Donald Trump. You fell in love with Donald Trump today. Well, it isn't really about just Don, Donald Trump. It's about him and the position he occupies. That position is considered the most important person in the world. The most powerful person in the world is supposed to be our president. When he goes through what he went through to become the president, he got my admiration because no one gave him a chance. You know, they, they called him names. Uh, people that called him names when he won he reached back and brought them along with him. He held no grudges. So who am I to say that I played quarterback when I only played running back? I don't know everything, and I don't try to address everything. But the reception I got today from him, I'll always remember that. Because he listened to us, and he knows that we can bring something to him to help the people of this country. He, by the way, has been saying for weeks now uh, that he uh, he said that he he thinks that that Trump will actually be better for the country uh, than Hillary would have been. So Brown is, is sort of a quasi supporter of Trump, just like Kanye West. Obviously, what Trump is trying to do here is he's trying to carve into the black base of support for the Democratic Party. Uh, he was trying to do that during the campaign, too. This is why he was speaking in so many black areas. I thought that was good. I think one of the things that he's doing that's not so good is that he's attempting to pit sort of Hispanics against blacks with a lot of the immigration stuff. I think that he's trying to limit legal immigration because he's saying it's undercutting the black working class. Uh, you know, that's, that is, is dicey economics and policy on the basis of, of politics. But the fact that Trump is, is reaching out to a lot of people trying to, to win new adherence to, to his positions uh, is smart politics. And you have, to, you have to praise him for that. Bill Gates also showed up at Trump Tower, and then he, uh, and he met with, he, I guess he met with, with Trump himself. And, uh, and Bill Gates is praising Trump. You have, to, you have to admire Trump for being able to get all these people uh, to, to praise him, even if you disagree with a lot of his policy. You know, a lot of his message is, has been about 
things where uh, he sees things not as as good as he'd like. But uh, in the same way that President Kennedy, Kennedy talked about the space mission and got the country behind that, I think that whether it's education or stopping epidemics, other health breakthroughs, uh, finishing polio, and in this energy space, there can be a very upbeat message that his administration is going to organize things, get rid of regulatory barriers, and have American leadership through innovation be one of the things that uh, he he gets behind. And uh, and so again, the the fact that, that Bill Gates is praising him, it's smart politics what Trump is doing. I, again, I, I see a, I foresee a future here where Trump actually. Uh, magnifies his own personal popularity because he he reacts how the American people react to headlines. So he sees a headline, he reacts to it like the normal guy, normal Joe reacts to the headline. Uh, he doesn't try to to overthink it, obviously, uh, and that could make him personally popular. Does that mean we're going to get the best policies? Not necessarily, but you have to you have to give the man credit where it's due. Uh, and the way that he's running th- this uh, this transition so far. Yeah, is it something that I love personally? No, because I don't like celebrity politics. But apparently, the American people are all for it, and so uh, even though his transition has been less popular than prior presidents' transitions, that's less to do with how he's handling it, and more to do with his own personal level of unpopularity. Both candidates were deeply unpopular. He's handling it about as well as Donald Trump can handle it. I'll give I'll give him that. Uh, even as much as I dislike all of the the celebrity apprentice aspects of this. Meanwhile, the Democrats are just making asses of themselves consistently. They continue to double down on the identity politics. They can't stop it. Uh, there's a fellow named Michael Denzel Smith uh, who uh, who is ripping on Kanye West for having the temerity to meet with to meet with Donald Trump at Trump Tower again. Uh, I think Donald Trump was was interested, as I said yesterday, in making Kanye West the secretary of doing dope bleep. Um, but. Uh, and I'm not sure what was going on at this meeting. It is pretty funny. He actually gave him a signed copy of his Time Magazine Person of the Year signed to Kanye West, and then Kanye put it up, which is an amazing troll by Trump. Amazing troll. Um, but but Michael Denzel Smith, uh, now he's saying that Kanye is just too white. Kanye West has an obsession with celebrity. Uh, he likes fame. He likes famous people. He also finds validation um, through a, a lens of whiteness in a lot of ways, and like Donald Trump is the ultimate white man. Right? Yeah. What do, what do you mean by you said a, a I, lens I, of whiteness? I what think, do you mean? By I that? think that Kanye wants to be accepted into uh, the most successful spaces, which are white spaces. He wants hmm. for like uh, the big fashion houses that have excluded black people to accept him uh, because he's Kanye West. He wants to transcend race in so many different ways, um, and, and have his art valued in certain spaces that aren't like aren't his millions of fans that may happen to be young black people. He's not too concerned about that. What he is concerned about is the validation of, uh, you know, white institutions and white people. And Donald Trump right now is poised to be the most powerful person in the planet. Okay, so again, what you're starting to see is leftists now declare any black person who even meets with Trump is actually too white. So Kanye is now too white. Now, there are a lot of things you can say about Kanye West. I, has this been a consistent criticism of Kanye West? But I, I wasn't—I wasn't sure that there is a consistent criticism drumbeat that Kanye is too white. Uh, meanwhile, you got Mark Lamont Hill, and he's doing the same routine. This is a professor of Morehouse College. Mark Lamont Hill has said black people are incapable of being racist because only powerful people can be racist. Uh, Mark Lamont Hill—he uh, says that the administration is all white. Clip fourteen, yeah. Uh, that, that's always the argument for not picking black people for things. It's always the argument for not picking women for things, is that we just pick the most qualified person. Uh, typically, when you have cabinet picks or any job opening, there are multiple people who are in the mix. Some people are not qualified. Some people are incredibly qualified. And within that mix, there are often a, di- a diverse range of people. Part of what you want to put forward in an, in an administration 
or in a corporation is a diverse front so that you see the value of having diversity. Diversity is not a hookup for black people. Diversity is its own benefit. <laughs> Institutions are better when they're diverse. Problems get solved differently. According to scientific studies, I know some folks don't believe in science, but studies also demonstrate that problems get solved more creatively, more dynamically when things are diverse. And so, in, but unfortunately, finally, this is part of Donald Trump's whole thing. We're going to make America great again. We're going back to a old time when things were different. Now he's going back to an it's old not, time when administrations were all white. That's, that's, that's very it's not true. It's not true. I mean, what you're basically saying is Donald Trump is a racist and anyone that he picks is not African-American. Therefore, no. must be by default some sort of let's go back to an old time and African-American have influence. No, no, Ben, I don't hear, the, I don't hear Mark saying that. I don't think I said racist. that at all. We said we're going back to there's, an old time. That is what he says, make America great again. That is actually yeah, 1989. Here's my thing. He, he's president-elect. He gets to pick who he wants to pick. He's picking qualified individuals, and his cabinet is not full yet. We know that Donald Trump has talked a lot about diversity. We know that he's talked a lot about women being high up in his company. We know that there are going to be people around him that are going to be qualified in different positions. Okay, and, and so Mark Lamont Hill, it's funny, you hear Mark Lamont Hill and, uh, and, and the anchor there both say, no, 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 you're, we're not saying he's racist, well then why are you bringing up the fact that he only has white people in his administration? It's not even true, for the, first of all, right? You've got Ben Carson is going to be a member of his administration, uh, Betsy DeVos, who's a, obviously a female, is going to be a member of his administration, uh, but the, the implication, they're still playing the same game. If we just keep saying that Donald Trump is secretly racist because he hasn't appointed enough black people to his cabinet, then somehow that's going to change things magically. Uh, What's amazing about this, of course, is that when George W. Bush did appoint black people to his cabinet, they immediately declared them white. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to for, for Trump to make a diversity push when every time he meets with a black person, the media immediately declare the black person white. Like they, they're, they're immediately converted to being white people the minute that they, they're touched by Trump. It's, it's truly amazing. The Democrats are also doubling down on the racial politics by pushing Keith Ellison uh, for head of the DNC. This, of course, is the Muslim congressperson from Minnesota, uh, and uh, that is relevant insofar as uh, he's been wildly anti-Israel, uh, endorsed anti-Semitic activities, behavior, and speech back in the 1990s many times. Uh, here is Keith Ellison uh, on the TVs, and again, he was trying to, uh, he just avoids questions about, about his own past. Uh, what are your responses to uh, the CNN reporting and other people that bring up uh, this past? I think that it is uh, bad reporting because I have a 10-year record in Congress. I have a four-year record in the Minnesota State House. I practiced law for 16 years right. and did a lot. I mean, and I just think that, you know, it's just that kind of reporting that, uh, you know, just that sort of is not quality and doesn't help people understand so the real issues. Is, so just to clear, clarify it then based on, again, all these quotes and sort of the, the buzz out there, what CNN and others were reporting on what you said before, do you believe that Louis Farrakhan is an anti-Semite? Sure, but I mean, what does he have to do with anything going on in this race or this country well, you, at this time? Absolutely some, nothing. Well, CNN, I mean, look, CNN it was a night says that you've you've said some positive things about Minister Farrakhan, a role model for black youth. But here's the thing, Joe. We're talking about something that happened in 1995. Right. This was this was a year that the Million Man March took off. Right. People were attacking the march at the time. The march was a very good thing. I was very proud to be part of it. But here I am having to answer questions about right. this and I'm not talking about what our country needs to look like and what the Democratic Party can do because this smear campaign from almost 21 years ago right. or something like that is this is about distracting and taking people away from the issues that really are at hand in this case right. and you know Hold on, we'll hold up on a couple of things. One, this is the same guy who also said in 2007 that 9-11 was like a Reichstag fire. 
Right? He actually compared 9-11 to the Rackstag fires, that the Bush administration could take control. He said the event was an excuse to target Muslims. He voted against Iron Dome funding to, blo- to protect Israel from rocket attack while they were under fire from Hamas. He pushed for Israel to relieve its blockade against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. He wrote in the Washington Post, As I have talked with ordinary Gazans, I have not encountered anyone representing Hamas, except for how the entire part of Gaza, Gaza is entirely run by Hamas. Uh, he's associated with a virulently anti-Israel group campaign to end the Israeli occupation. Uh, he's, he's a radical. He's a radical. And I love that he says, well, it happened in 1995, so no biggie. Yeah, except for the fact that all of you were on top of the Donald Trump said something bad about uh, Miss Universe contestant in 1994 or whatever. I mean, it's, it, the, the hypocrisy is pretty rampant. No wonder nobody is trusting the Democrats to, to, to put things together again. They, they're, they're not. They're not. And the Democrats don't even understand they have an opportunity here because Donald Trump is going to govern on an ad hoc basis. There will be conflict continuing inside the Republican Party in all likelihood. Uh, he's going to pursue some policies that are probably not great. He's probably going to say some things that don't please everybody. But Democrats are so busy trying to double down on their identity politics, they refuse to acknowledge the mistakes that they've made here. Okay, time for some things I like, things I hate, and some uh, Bible talks. It's Wednesday. So, things I like. Uh, last night... I was wiped out, and uh, my, my two-and-a-half-year-old, almost three-year-old now, uh, she wanted to watch a little bit of TV. Whenever she watches TV, uh, we don't let our kids watch TV until they're two. Uh, now that she's two, we let her watch TV occasionally. Uh, and, uh, and so we, but it's always old musicals, and she'd never seen The Wizard of Oz. So uh, we put on The Wizard of Oz, and uh, we skipped all of the scary parts with The, with the Wicked Witch of the West, because that's a little intense for a three-year-old. Um, but... She loved it. And the reason she loved it is because there's a solid case to be made The Wizard of Oz is the greatest movie of all time. There really is. Like, of all movies ever made, there's a solid case to, to be made that it is a sp- it, 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 it holds up, too. I mean, it's an hour, 40 minutes. It moves incredibly quickly. The music is great. The lyrics are great. It has probably the single best song uh, ever written in the American songbook, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Judy Garland is just spectacular in it. What's amazing about Judy Garland uh, in it is is this was made in 1939. I believe that Judy Garland was let's see, she was 17 years old when this when this came out, 16 when it was filmed, and she it's a brilliant performance. I mean, she's really tremendous in it. Uh, one of the most talented people ever to come out of Hollywood. Her life story is really tragic, but um, she is a, uh, a she is just wonderful in it. The entire cast is wonderful, uh, and. If you've never seen Wizard of Oz, you're really missing out because it is 1939. There's, it's funny. There are certain years in movies uh, that are better than other years. 1939 is widely considered uh, the, the, the best year in movies ever. I mean, the number of great movies that came out that year are just astonishing. Gone with the Wind came out that year. The Wizard of Oz came out that year. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Stagecoach, Ninotchka, Wuthering Heights, Dark Victory. Uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Gunga Din. Uh, it's... Young Mr. Lincoln of Mice and Men, the original of Mice and Men, which is a very good movie. Uh, So many good movies came out that year, but this is the best of them. Wizard of Oz is the one that holds up the best. It holds up better than Gone with the Wind, which is a tremendous movie, but this is a better movie. Uh, Here is, for those who haven't seen it, the five of you haven't seen it, here's a little bit of The Wizard of Oz. And who might you be? If you please, I am Dorothy.
<laughs> okay, so we don't have to watch all this. And then, of course, they're doing the, the kind of, this is the tribute trailer, essentially. Uh, the original, imagine in 1939, and you've never seen a color movie. Because color movies only came out like 1939, right? Gone with the Wind is in full pan, uh, panoramic Technicolor. Uh, the, in, in Wizard of Oz, the great reveal is 10 minutes in the first 15 minutes of the movie is all in sepia. It's all in black and white. And then there's a point where she opens her front door. And as she opens her front door, what's behind the door is all in color, right? It's like what Pleasantville does, uh, but in reverse, sort of. Uh, and it's just, it's an astonishingly good movie. And you get to the end. If you're not weeping by the end of Wizard of Oz, then you have no heart, no brain, and no courage. So uh, there you are. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So I'm not sure whether I love this or hate this. Keith Olbermann is sort of the Alex Jones of the left. So Alex Jones, uh, uh, we need to play more Alex Jones on this show just because Alex Jones is so highly amusing. I mean, the guy's a total nutcase, but he's really, really funny to watch. Uh, today he actually growled like a panther on his show, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, his shirt was on at the time, which is always positive. Um, but Keith Olbermann is sort of the Alex Jones of the left, and he is a complete nutcase. So here is Keith Olbermann taking himself very seriously uh, while still dressed like he thinks Edward R. Murrow dressed in 1954. Uh, here he is as he loses credibility, uh, the, that, that kind of red-blue divide in the background, uh, I wonder if that changes every show based on his mental state. Like, if he's more angry, it's more red, and if he's more calm, it's more blue. In any case, here's Keith Olbermann. We are at war with Russia. Or perhaps more correctly, we have lost a war with Russia without a battle. We are no longer a sovereign nation. We are no longer a democracy. We are no longer a free people. We are the victims of a bloodless coup. So far, a bloodless coup engineered by Russia with, at best, the traitorous indifference of the Republican Party and Donald John Trump, a man who, to borrow a phrase from another December long ago, will live in infamy. In five weeks' time, unless desperate measures are taken, we will hand over the government to a man who lost the popular vote by more than Woodrow Wilson or Jimmy Carter won it, a man whom the Russians wanted to run our country for them, a man whom the Russians got to run our country for them, a man for whom the Russians interfered with our elections, which if we did it to another country would be described as an act of war. And in this country, we have conceded defeat because permitting Donald Trump to assume the office of president reduces the chance that we will have any future elections. The nation and all of our freedoms hang by a thread, and the military apparatus of this country is about to be handed over to scum who are beholden to scum, Russian scum. <laughs> As things are today, January 20th will not be an inauguration but rather the end of the United States as an independent country. It will not be a peaceful change of power. It will be a usurpation, and Ooh. the usurper has no validity, Whoa, no Keith credibility, Oberman, and no authority under the Constitution. Keith Olbermann and Fuego! I'm old enough to remember when he was actually funny on SportsCenter, and now he does this kind of stuff. It, it's the end of the country. We're all going to die. Dictatorship has arrived in the guise of the orange-haired maniac. What are we going to do about it? Nothing. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to rant at you and tell you how we're at war with Russia. Sure, I was totally fine with Obama handing over power to Russia in all of our foreign affairs. Sure, I was fine with Hillary Clinton handing Barack Obama a reset button. Sure, I had nothing to say about Teddy Kennedy actually negotiating with the Soviet Union to try to undermine Ronald Reagan. Sure, I 
I have nothing to say about the fact that the Soviet Union actively attempted to undermine Richard Nixon in 1960 in order to get JFK elected. But this, this is the act of war. And by the way, if we had done this to any other nation, it would have been an act of war, except if Obama actually spent public taxpayer dollars in order to try and oust Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister of Israel, then I would ignore that and pretend it never happened. Also, I'm crazy and my head's about to explode. So it, it, that, that was, I, I'm, I'm, I think our guys actually cut the, the wrong part of this, uh, of this clip, because if you continue the clip further on, his head actually does explode. It's like the end of, uh, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. They open the ark and his, his face melts down and then and just explodes everywhere. You think maybe Democrats are overstating their case a little bit? It's so funny. During, uh, during the Obama administration, the media were constantly accusing Republicans of overreach. There would be some sort of scandal. And then we'd say, hey, that's a scandal. And then they would say, you're overreaching. Stop it. That's overreach. Well, now the Democrats actually are overreaching just a little bit, right? It's the end of the country. Democracy is dead. We're all finished. It's all over. What are we going to do? Yeah, listen, as you may have noticed the last few days, I'm not a big fan of Russian hacking. I'm not a big fan of Trump's foreign policy. In fact, if you watch this entire campaign, I routinely and consistently criticized Donald Trump's warmth toward Vladimir Putin, one of the worst people on planet Earth. That said, is this the end of everything? Are we all going to die? Is fascism afoot? Is this the last election we'll ever hold? Is this not a peaceful transfer of power? This kind of nuttiness. I mean, really, if you can't put things into any sort of historical political context, then you end up with this kind of nuttiness on a regular basis. Okay, other things that I hate. So I spoke at Yeshiva University uh, last week, uh, the week before. Was it the week before? No, it was last week. Uh, it was at YU. I lose track of all time. And, uh, and 28 professors wrote a letter condemning me, uh, and the president of the university condemned me too. Why? Because I talked about the Zoe Tur incident on CNN Headline News, made some jokes about Zoe Tur. I feel I have a right to make jokes about people who grab me by the back of the neck on national television and threaten me with violence. Uh, call me crazy, but I, I, I think that's my right. Uh, they also didn't like the fact that I said that transgenderism is a mental disorder. Uh, it clearly is a mental disorder uh, that is well accepted in the scientific community. It's impossible not to label it a mental illness or mental disorder. The DSM goes out of its way not to because the DSM-5 is politicized. The DSM-4 called it gender identity disorder, a disorder. They renamed it gender dysphoria and then claimed transgenderism is fine. It's just the depression associated with the transgenderism that's not. There's no evidence whatsoever for this proposition. We don't say the same thing about schizophrenia. We don't say schizophrenia is fine. It's just the depression associated with the schizophrenia that's a problem. Right? We don't say that. And the reason we don't say that is because that's silly. Okay, the fact is, what, I, what I've said and I've said in many speeches, is that gender identity disorder is a disorder. And the solution is not society pretending that men can become women and women can become men. In fact, the statistics tend to show that transgender surgery has very little impact whatsoever on suicidality, on suicide rates, uh, and beyond that, there is the, beyond that there are actual societal costs to pretending that men can become women and women can become men. Not just in terms of the the transgendered people who are looking to treatments that may not work, but also in terms of young people who are being told that gender is completely malleable and get sexually confused about gender. And to pretend that kids don't get confused about gender is to not to know a child. So that's, that's just, it's silliness. But this apparently is out of bounds. You're not allowed to say any of this. There are people on the left who know this and won't say it. Uh, and I, I'll note one other thing here, and this is actually a topic for a broader show at some point. There's been a lot of focus in the United States put on bullying. And I'm not a, f a fan of bullying. I was a pretty I was pretty victimized by bullies when I was in high school. Um, but the, but the, the linkage between suicidality, between suicide rate and bullying, 
uh, is extraordinarily tenuous, just in the research. The idea that if you're bullied, you commit suicide, that's a very, very tenuous finding. It doesn't really, there's not a lot of evidence to that. In fact, there's just as much evidence that if you're a bully, you're going to commit suicide than that if you are bullied, that you're going to commit suicide. In fact, some of the most bullied groups in human history have some of the lowest suicide rates. The black population in the United States, for example, has almost no suicide rate. Uh, the upper class white population in the United States has a very high suicide rate. Um, the, 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 the social science here is really, really unclear. And to pretend that, you know, the, the, this narrative that the media pretends that it's perfectly normal for a man to think that he's a woman and that he actually is a woman on the inside. And if we just pretended along with him, then the suicide rate in the transgender community would drop dramatically. It's just that we're too mean. That's there's no evidence to support this stuff. There really is. There's very, very little evidence to support any of this stuff. And there are some, some contradictory, there's some contradictory elements to it. Okay. Uh, time, uh, beyond that, why you also condemn me because they were very, the real reason why you condemn me is because it's very rare that a modern Orthodox school, modern Orthodox Jewish school has the opportunity to virtue signal about how liberal they are. Uh, when I come and I say things that are controversial, that's an opportunity uh, for them to do so. They, some of the lefties there were, were upset because I said that, that Judaism, traditional Judaism, doesn't support same-sex marriage, abortion, uh, and, uh, and socialism. Uh, all of that is pretty inarguable, and I'd be more than happy to provide a list of sources. In fact, I'm, I'm compiling a list of sources uh, for Jews who care about this sort of thing. Again, I've never said that Judaism ought to be the guide for public policy. All I've said is that Judaism, and there's a reason Orthodox Jews tend to vote Republican, and it's because their values tend to match the values of the Republican Party better than they do the Democratic Party. Okay, time with that in mind, time for a little bit of Bible talk. So this week's Parsha, every week the Jews read a different portion of the Bible. Um, about two months ago, when we hit the uh, the end of the Bible, we celebrated some Chat Torah, and then we started over. So th- this week's parsha is Vayishlach. This is from Genesis. This is one of the most cryptic, one of the most cryptic incidents in all of the the Old Testament. Probably the most cryptic incident. There are really two that are that are super cryptic. This one, and then the one where Moses asks to see God's face, and God says no, and then shows him the back of his. Uh, his, his, his shows him his back. That's really cryptic. This is also this is probably even more cryptic. Uh, this is from Genesis 32, 25 through 30. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. When he saw he could not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip became dislocated as he wrestled with him. And and he, the man, said, "Let me go, for dawn is breaking." And Jacob said, "I will not let you go unless until, unless you have blessed me." So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have commanding power. Really what it, what it means is because you have struggled with God and with man and you have prevailed. That's, that's the actual language. Kisaritam. Kisaritaim Elohim v'imanashim v'tuchal. Right? That's what it, it means. To, it means struggle with God. Yisrael, Israel, literally means uh, struggle with God. Uh, and Jacob asked and said, now tell me your name. And he said, why do you ask for my name? And then he blessed him and then he disappears. So the traditional reading is that Jacob is wrestling with an angel. If you notice the language here, it's pretty clear that he's not wrestling with an angel, actually, right? It says that he's wrestling with a dude, right? He's wrestling with a guy. It says, Vayavatar Yaakov levado vayavek ish. Right? Ish means man. It doesn't mean angel. If they want to say malach, they could say malach. There are plenty of angels that appear in the, in the Torah. But he's wrestling with a man. So who is this guy? The whole point of this incident is it doesn't matter who the guy is. The whole point for Jacob is, is Jacob spends virtually his entire life running away from things. He runs away from Esau. He runs away from, La- from Laban, from Lavan. He, he tries to, he doesn't run from Esau, but he basically kowtows to him again later. Uh, he's constantly running from a fight. He ends up trying to run, for, or at least kowtow, to Shechem after Shechem rapes his daughter. Jacob is not a model of stand up and fight. He isn't. 
and what he does here, in fact, is is he's thinking about running away. I mean, if you just read the text, right, this is right before he's supposed to meet Esau. His family is about to go and meet with Esau, and he goes back across the river. Right? He leaves them on one side, or he goes back across the river by himself, and he's alone. Right? It's, it, it wasn't just that he was left alone. The actual language suggests despair. Vayivater Yaakov levado. It actually means Jacob despaired alone. He he despaired because Jacob is thinking to himself, why is it? that no matter what I do, no matter how I serve God, I keep getting stuck in these bad situations where people are victimizing me, right? He's asking the same question that you ask, that every religious person asks, that every secular person asks, and that question is, why is it, why is it that bad things happen to good people? Why are people constantly being victimized? And the answer that God gives him, the answer that God gives him is because you're supposed to struggle. You're not supposed to run from the struggle. Sometimes you run from physical confrontation, that's okay. Sometimes you're supposed to avoid it, but... The struggle itself is something you can't run from as a religious person. That struggle is the evidence. That's why we're called Yisrael. It's why Israel exists. Just the struggle with God's justice, the struggle to do what you think God wants you to do, even when you know that God isn't necessarily going to reward you in this world, even when you don't understand God's logic. That's the struggle of all human beings. And that's why it's very interesting in the, in the Torah, after Abraham, Abraham is renamed by an angel, uh, or by God, rather, and he's called Avraham, right? He, he goes from Abram to Abraham in the middle of the, in the, middle of the Bible. Uh, and that happens with a, with a couple of other characters in the Bible where they're actually renamed in the middle of the Bible. And they're called Avraham the rest of the time. You never hear him referred to as Abram again. Now he's Abraham. In this case, Jacob, in, right after this, is referred to as Jacob again. So he says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob, but you're going to be called Israel because you struggled with God and with men. But he goes back to being called Jacob. And the reason for that, and he's, he, it's, it's, he's referred to as both, actually, the, the rest of his time in the Torah. The reason for both is because all human beings are both. We're, we're, we're Jacob, the person who wants to run away from the fight to survive. And we're Yisrael, the person who's willing to struggle with the injustice of man and the seeming injustice of God in order to uphold God's ultimate justice. Right? That wrestling is the key to life. The minute you stop wrestling then you actually do become godless. So the, I, I helped uh, ghostwrite an autobiography of a, of a fellow who was a Holocaust survivor. He's Elie Wiesel's cousin. Amazing, amazing guy. Uh, and, uh, and he survived Auschwitz with Elie Wiesel. He was actually in the camp with Elie Wiesel. Um, he, he made it to Theresienstadt with his own father. His father died right before Theresienstadt was liberated. Uh, and, uh, and so I helped write his, his autobiography. And I asked him, do you believe in God? And he said, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe God is intimately involved in the world. And I can't blame him. I mean, considering what he watched and what he witnessed, you can't blame anybody who suffers that much and then says, I can't see a just God being involved in a world like this. Um, but he raised his kids Jewish anyway. In fact, his kids are, are modern Orthodox. And he and his kids, some, one of his kids moved back to Israel. Uh, his daughter lives in Israel. And it's, um, and it's, again, that's a testament to the struggle. What made this man a great man is the fact that he continued to struggle with the idea of godly justice and lead a happy life in accordance with what he thought was the tradition and with God's will, in spite of the fact that the world isn't a perfect place. It's easy to be the, – the, 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 a lot of people on the left, a lot of secular people – not on the left. People, people who are secular look at, look at religious people and say, what idiots? You guys all think that you're like Dr. Pangloss in, in, in um, Voltaire. You, you think that this is the best of all possible worlds, the religious people. No, we don't. We don't. Any religious person who thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds or that everything is hunky-dory is, uh, is not truly religious. The purpose of being religious is to struggle with that reality, that you don't understand everything, that you're not truly in control of everything, that all you have to do is what's in front of you. 
that as Gandalf puts it, all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that's given us. That's all we can do. And all we can do is try to do the right thing in the face of a universe that sometimes seems unjust, but we insist that justice does apply even if we can't see it. That's the struggle between Jacob and Israel. That's the struggle between Jacob and man and God. And that's the struggle we should each engage in if we hope to be better human beings. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, let's say you were a stormtrooper and you were enjoying a nice meal of roasted Ewok in the Death Star mess hall. Well, all of a sudden you hear the voice of Alec Guinness saying, use the force, Luke. The next thing you know, the entire place is going up in flames around you. And it's at this moment you really wished you had life insurance. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping right now with Policy Genius. Find the right policy and protect your family. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top companies and their team of licensed experts. Well, they're on hand to help talk you through it. No added fees. Your personal information remains private. It's super satisfying to check life insurance off that to-do list. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, God forbid, your family will be able to cover mortgage payments, college costs, or other expenses. Life insurance through your workplace might not offer enough protection for your family's needs. It's not going to follow you if you leave your job. Head on over to policygenius.com right now. Save time and money. Give your family a financial safety net with Policy Genius. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro or click that link in the description. Get your free life insurance quotes. See how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash Shapiro. Hey, 